I have officially completely lost my fucking mind. Something inside of me has broken. It is what I would describe as a tether. A tether that was chaining me to my childhood. I think that I was somebody who clung very tightly to that tether. I really didn't want to be let go. I was I was begging, clawing, screaming, crying, trying not to have to be a fully-fledged adult. But all of the tethers have broken, in a very literal sense. I've reached that point in my life where no one's looking out for me anymore, where it's all on me. And when you get to that point, you just hardline become a boomer. It's happened. I'm 27 years old, going on 28. I'm officially a boomer now. And this world is full just full to the brim of boomers, be they actual boomers or Gen Xers, boomer, Gen Xer, white guys ranting about how the world has gone insane and nothing makes sense to them anymore. And I've reached the age where that can be true for me too. Even though I'm a millennial who grew up on the internet, who you would think had seen everything, you would think that nothing could possibly not make sense to me as the world I came up in already made no sense. It already was baffling. From day one, I've been confused about what the fuck is going on. And it just, it just keeps getting more confusing and more baffling. And the more I learn, the less sense it makes. They say that the older you get, the more you realize what you don't know, the gravity of what you don't know. But even more than that, What you really realize is the gravity of what everybody else doesn't know. You realize just how insane almost everybody is and how you're living in a world full of people with no fucking idea what's going on, trying to make decisions in order to influence what's going on. I am functioning from a baseline of having no sense of normalcy, no idea what normalcy was ever supposed to be. I think the average person, they, they start their life and they get a sense of the world and they think that they know what the world is. They develop this concept of here's how things are, here's how people are, here's who I am. And then at some point, either in their teens, in college, maybe even their late 20s, they have an awakening to something else. And that awakening is so powerful to them, this, this sudden realization that things weren't the way they thought and that maybe it's this other thing, that that new thing becomes what they now think everything is. And let me tell you, that is something I've experienced every six months of my entire life. Because I moved constantly, I was never treated as a normal person, I never fit in, I never had that initial impression of how things were. It was a constant experience of, oh wow, I didn't know things were like that. Oh, I didn't know this was contributing to it. I didn't realize this factor over here. And as that goes on over enough times, you just keep gathering more and more data, more and more information that makes you realize that things are just so infinitely complex that if you even attempt to reduce it, if you attempt to put some kind of simplistic label on things or to just describe things in so much as, say, a sentence, a phrase, even a whole book, it is never that simple. It's never that straightforward. It's never so easy as switching from one ideology to the next. It's a constant bombardment of new ideas. And so when I see 
the way that people have this excitement over what they think they've realized. And then they go forth and they wield that realization as a sword to go into battle with all the other realizations. And you're standing back looking at all of it and going, okay, elements of what all of you are saying have some truth to them, but you, have, you missed this. You didn't know about this. Well, you haven't been to this place where they do it this way. Well, you haven't heard this thought. You haven't considered it from this angle. And these people don't realize that there's more to the picture. Everybody thinks they've got it all. They think they've got it in their little box, in the palm of their hands. They think they've reached at least enough understanding that they can make some basic sweeping judgments about what's going on. And they are wrong. And when challenged... They don't know how to realize the depth of what they don't yet know. And this is extremely challenging for somebody who has consumed enough different perspective that they can say something that challenges the notion of what someone else believes in a way that that person has never heard before. Because that person thinks that there are only two possible sets of belief. Either the world is what they thought it was before they had a revelation, or it is what they thought it was after their revelation. And so for you to come in with a completely different angle, people can't fucking get it. They want to fit it into one of those two boxes. They want you to be either the thing that previously made sense to them, or the thing that currently makes sense to them, or the thing that they think everyone else believes. But it's never that clear cut. And even if you think it is, even if you think that you have a label that you agree with, the next guy standing next to you who is saying that they think the same thing is actually thinking something very fucking different. You're all thinking something very different. And the more you try to push the people around you into these labels, the more you try to say, oh, well, you think this, ergo, you must also think this, this, and this, you are wrong. A hundred percent of the time. You are never getting the full story on what that guy thinks. Now, granted, in this modern society, there are people who have crafted their whole identity around a system of beliefs that they have seen espoused, and they've just taken all of it onto themselves. There's nothing else. And yet, even still, that person will have missed out on the other things that the people espousing the beliefs that they learn from also believe. And so you end up in the situation where people think they're a part of a team. But then, if they were to go through and one by one just be able to brain scan everybody else on their team, they would figure out, oh shit, actually, we all have at least some margin of error. That's called being a different human. And it always will be the case because inherently everyone is somewhat different we all think a little different we all act a little different we all believe a little bit of different things and so when you reduce people down to those categories you miss out on all that difference and as a result everyone's talking past each other all the time everyone is simplifying everybody else and totally missing the forest for the trees on what's really fucking happening. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm starting this off in a very fucking ambiguous kind of way. I know I'm saying a lot of just, just broad concepts here, but I need this baseline for you. I need you to understand that nothing I am going to say comes from 
any viewpoint you've ever heard of. If you hear something that you think, oh, that's like a conservative talking point, that's a liberal talking point, that's a libertarian, I am not any of those things. I have not read about those things. I do not know what other people who feel those things believe. I don't generally participate in groups like that. So if something I say happens to be something that someone from one of these groups might say, it's a coincidence. It's just the fact that I have certain conclusions I've come to that are somewhat similar to certain conclusions other people have come to, and those people gave themselves a label, but that doesn't mean that I am the same label as them. This is Artso Fartso's Whirling Dervish. I am Artso Fartso, a man at the end of his rope, a man snapping, breaking into, into ever-increasing smaller pieces. Joining me here is my observer, my caretaker, if you will, Pantsu Party, if you'd like to say hello. Hey, everybody. I, uh, I'm here against my will. This is happening. I'm being entertained, and I will try to keep this, this man in line to the best of my abilities, but I have no promises for you folks. What you should expect from this podcast is what I would describe as writing in fast motion. I am pouring my stream of consciousness directly into this microphone. This is as close to just what thoughts inside of my brain sound like because it's irreducible in a way. I can't quite take the whirling dervish of thoughts in my head and just plant that onto a page in a tightly written, concise thing without losing a lot of it. It's side tangents. It's always branching. It's always going in different directions. It might sound like the manic ravings of an insane person because that is exactly what it is. It is manic, complete insanity that is always churning inside my mind. And when I try, when I try to take that and put it into a a tweet, when I try to take the end result of that train of thought and reduce that to just a sentence and then see the reaction to it, I realize that you have to take this journey with me because the level at which I can communicate perhaps is not, is just not high enough. I don't think I can do this in writing and convey it to you in a way you'll understand. And I don't know how to be better at it because I've spent years and years, perhaps two decades, practicing writing, practicing being more clear, practicing trying to make sure that people completely understand me when I open my mouth. And the result of that has been so many countless scripts or videos or tweets or whatever that in my mind make perfect sense and I feel like I couldn't be any clearer and yet somehow can be interpreted so differently by different people that it makes me feel like, okay, well, I actually need 10 more tweets. I actually need an infinite amount of tweets. I actually can't ever stop because if if even one person didn't get it, then I I I can't say that I completed the mission. I can't say that I I completely did it right. And I know, I know it's impossible. It's impossible for everybody to always get it. But I will fight the ocean till the end of time. I will just throw my fist at it because what else is there to do? What else is my life about? 
I, I realize that other people, maybe they, they can't relate to this feeling because they can go back to a normal life afterwards. You can get into an argument with somebody and you can reach an end point where you go, all right, well, this is over. I now have to go back to living. And sure, I have things that go on in my life, but I can't interrupt this sensation. There's There's nothing that is more meaningful in a way. It's like... Me spending time with my fiance can distract me. I can pour myself into that and I can get pretty far away, pretty far away from this endless amount of thought. But this is my job. My job is to talk about the things I think about on the Internet. And so ultimately, you know, when I clock back in, it starts and it doesn't stop until I am miles away from it, until days have passed. Because what the fuck else would I be thinking about other than this? It's hard to know where to begin. It's hard to know where to end. It's hard to know how to transition a thought into another because it's all interconnected. Everything in the world is a rich tapestry. All of it plays into each other. Every little thing, every little detail plays into the greater picture. If you erase even the smallest speck on a painting, it becomes a different painting. It reads different. All of those motions, they contribute something. Even if there's a lot of extraneous lines that were unintentional, it still accidentally creates more sensation in you as a viewer. You will always need every detail to get that picture. And so no matter how much I go on, no matter how minute or how grandiose the things I'm saying are, they all are a part of the picture. And none of us can see this picture in full, not only because it's so massive, but also because it's constantly changing. It's, an, it's a gif that just goes on forever. It's a it's a web M that 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 has no uh, time code because it just keeps going. And the only way it stops is when the universe ends. First things first, I'm going to tell you about the moment I realized that my boomerfication was complete. It was when I finally did something that I used to have strong feelings about not doing out of a sense of defeat. And that defeat was the realization that I was going to willingly participate in society for the sake of my personal gain. I never wanted to mow the lawn. I hate mowing the lawn. I hate it in concept. I hate what it represents. I it just mowing the lawn has always seemed like the most pointless activity in the world to me because it is purely purely to look good for other people. Now granted, I do think there are some people who would who would like to look outside and see a nicely cut lawn and even I after cutting the lawn looked at it and went, "You know what? It does look nice. Looks better than it did. I guess that's worth it. I guess that's worth pushing this fucking bucking bronco across my grass, holding this thing down that makes my hands hurt. My hands felt numb afterwards." This is literally something I've done maybe twice in my whole life, all right? My dad used to mow the lawn. You know why? Because my dad really cared. He really cared about making the lawn look good. He cared about making the house look good, and nobody else did. Nobody else in the family gave a shit. And he would tell us, he would try everything he had in his book of tricks to make us clean up. It wasn't just threats, because those didn't work, because what, what can my dad do to me? 
I mean, he's not going to hit me. And even if he did, it wouldn't work. It would just make me hate him. He can't, he can't put me in timeout because I'm, 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 what, what, what's that going to do? How's that going to change my mind? He would offer money. He would be like, I'll give you $25 to cut the lawn. And I would mentally log that and go, hmm, I guess I can do that in three or four days. And by the time I would even be considering it, I'd go outside and realize it was already done while I was asleep at 2 p.m. So he, he eventually hired a lawn crew. He realized that his sons, his three sons, all in their late teens to early 20s, were so unreliable that if he wanted it done, he was just going to have to hire a lawn crew. There was no bribery that could make me do it. Now, granted, here's my justification. That lawn was fucking huge. Gigantic lawn. Did I choose to live in a house with a gigantic lawn? Did I choose to have a life where there was going to be this this task you have to do every weekend, waste hours of your time, which it took in order to mow this gigantic lawn? I don't need $25. I need two hours of comfort in my air-conditioned room watching anime, as I do. I didn't want to mow the fucking lawn. I knew it would happen one day. I wrote this story back in 2011 called Cyrano and Purple Steve. The first chapter is about this character who recounts the, st- the, s- the tale of how he had tried to refuse to mow the lawn over the years, and his dad would just hit him in the head and make him do it. So once he finally moved out on his own, he decided not to mow the lawn at all. And one day the lawn gets so long that people just start assuming nobody lives in that house and they just keep throwing trash into the yard. And so it becomes a trash house. It just has trash all over the place. And eventually someone from the city comes and tells him, you have to mow the yard. So he goes out and he starts cutting through the yard with a machete. Because I knew that that's that's what happens. If you want to live in society, they will make you mow the fucking yard. It's gonna happen. You're getting there eventually. So when I moved out of the house finally, the first place I moved to was a townhouse. They mow the yard for you because they know you don't give a shit, but they give a shit because they want to be able to make this neighborhood presentable for people to move into. So they would do that. The second place I moved into, it just so happened that my next-door neighbor was the 30-year-old boomer, the one, you know the guy, and he loved mowing lawns, just super into it. My landlady would pay him to mow our lawn. Pretty sweet, pretty sweet deal. Finally, we moved into a house where in the lease it said, you have to take care of the lawn. And I went, well, you know what? I love everything about this house. Mowing the yard for 20 minutes out of every three weeks is worth, it's a worthwhile trade-off to have this house that I want. So now I have to do it. I had to buy a lawnmower. I had to push it through the yard. It wasn't fun. It, it sucked. Uh, it made the yard look good. And I, and I had to force myself to take pride in that. I had to look at it and say, well, at least the lawn does look better. It's not like I did this for no reason, right? It's not like I'm deciding to care about how the lawn looks in 
in retrospect, after the fact that I've been forced to do this thing by society, a thing that I would never have cared about on my own, never have given a single fuck about how a, a lawn looks. You know why? Because I don't spend any time in my lawn. It's just there because it's just there to keep distance between the house and the road. It's just there so there's an excuse, an aesthetically pleasing excuse for me to not live right up on the road where the cars are going by so that my house can be quieter. It's all I really, it's all a lawn's utility is. You manicure it because if you don't, then people will look at you funny. And I have always been looked at funny. So what difference does it make to me? But that wasn't where the boomification began. That was where it ended. That was where it was complete. That was the final nail in the coffin. The boomerification, I knew we were, we were getting to the end because we went to an outdoor, me and my fiance May, we went to an outdoor furniture store, a place that just sells knickknacks to put in your yard. Extremely expensive, bizarre, aesthetic things that exist for literally no purpose but to look cool outside your house. And even though they're not personalized, they don't say anything about me. They're just generic lawn things. I looked at them and I wanted all of them. I wanted every single thing they had. I even wanted the football logo cornhole thing. I don't know if you know what cornhole is down here in the South. We have this game where you take a a wedge of wood with a hole in it. And you take a beanbag and you throw it into the hole. And people do this at parties while they drink. And there's a bunch of them that have football teams on them that I know nothing about. But their logos their logos have nice color aesthetics, right? Hmm. I mean, if I had a cornhole thing, maybe I'd throw a beanbag in it once every couple of weeks while I'm standing outside having a smoke. I don't fucking know. What if people want to come over to my house and play cornhole? Why not? If I could have these things, why wouldn't I? Now, thankfully, I don't have that much money. So I didn't go on a buying spree at this place. But I imagined, I imagined a version of myself a few years from now. After paying off my taxes and saving up and having money in the bank and having a child and being a boring fuck. Just going, ah, this looks nice. Throw it in my yard. And now I got a yard full of bullshit. I passed those houses. They look awesome. You Have you ever looked at a house with a yard full of shit and gone, oh, that looks like garbage? No, you're always like, oh, cool house. I want to be able to look at my house and go, oh, cool house. Bam. Boomerfication, 99%. Mowing the lawn took it over 100. I bought the lawnmower from a guy who looked like Alex Jones. Almost exactly. He was, we found him on Craigslist, drove into a neighborhood that was the most boomer neighborhood conceivable. And I'll tell you why. Because in my moving around, I've become obsessed with city planning. I've become obsessed with the layouts of cities, how they affect the lives of the people in them. I think that you could probably predict about 60 to 70% of somebody's entire ideology based on the layout of their city. Doesn't matter if they even chose to live there. If they grew up there, a lot of their mentality is going to be tied into how their city is laid out because it changes the whole dynamic of how you live. 
If you live in Virginia Beach, you need a car. This is a big city. And I mean both big in terms of population and land size. It is the 31st most populous city in America. America is the size of a continent. And it has a lot of big cities. This is the 31st biggest. Maybe 41st. I don't remember. But it's also the 31st biggest. I know that. uh, In this case, in land area. It's a fucking enormous city. It is the size of a metropolis area. If you think of some big city, usually the part that's actually called the city, like, say, Boston. Boston, the city, is a really small city. It's very dense. It has a huge population. But you could walk across it in probably five hours. If that, it's not very large. The entire area surrounding it is a bunch of slightly smaller cities, and when you refer to Boston, you're really referring to that whole area, even though technically only the center part is Boston, and it does have its own culture that's not necessarily shared by those surrounding cities. They all have a little bit of different personality, but the entire Boston metro area is smaller than just Virginia Beach, the city. It is an enormous city. It's very spread out. There is... Almost no public transit. We have buses, and if you want to take a bus from one side of the city to the other, it's going to take an eternity. And there's tons of fun stuff to do in Virginia Beach, but it's all over Virginia Beach. Now, this might sound like it's a pain in the ass. However, if you were to take public transit around Boston, the amount of time it will take you to get from one side of Boston to the other side of Boston on public transit is not very different from the amount of time it'll take you to get from one side of the city to the other in Virginia Beach in a car. Because the the miles per hour, the speed speed limits, God, why the fuck did that word slip my mind? The speed limits are much higher here. There's way less traffic. So you just generally can drive pretty fast and get where you need to go. So if you have a car, it's not an inconvenient city at all. But you need a car. And that changes a lot of things about the way you live your life. Now... I like to live in a nice suburban neighborhood, but I like to be walking distance from something, a 7-Eleven, a Walmart, a grocery store, just somewhere that if it's 2 a.m. and I am drunk and I want to get a snack, a Taco Bell, oh, thank God, there's a Taco Bell in walking distance, thank God, however... When you become a true boomer, you move into these neighborhoods where you can't even walk across the neighborhood. That's the kind of neighborhood we're talking about here. The kind where you get lost trying to get to one house. Where there's just this endless labyrinthine roads that are just splintering off in all directions. And you enter and you feel like you've entered a town. I mean, you have. You've entered a neighborhood the size of... Of the entire town of Braintree that I used to live in, except that the houses are so spread apart because everybody's got a gigantic lawn. Some of these houses are probably half a million dollars, except that there's a lot of houses in there that are the same price as maybe an apartment in the middle of the city. Why? Because you're not close to anything. You're way the fuck back in this fucking labyrinthine neighborhood. So as long as you have a car... And you're willing to put in that extra little five minutes of driving to get out of your neighborhood, which you might as well be because you're a boomer. Your time's not worth anything. You're not 
doing fun things with young people. You're leaving the house once a week to go to the grocery store and spending the rest of your time watching TLC. So we go into that neighborhood and we go to the house and in front of this guy's house, he has not just the lawnmower, but he has like five lawnmowers. And I'm just wondering, like, does he just go around and maybe find abandoned lawnmowers, take them home, soup them up a little and sell them for less? That I, I'm guessing. That's just my bet. But he had five fucking lawnmowers in his driveway. Obviously, they weren't all lawnmowers he was using. And when the guy, when we tell him we're here, it takes a minute. But then this enormous bike comes from behind my car. It's got those big fat fucking tires on it. That's like motorcycle tires on a bike. And he's standing up on it looking powerful as hell, literally looking like Alex Jones riding in. And his handshake just about broke my hand. His hands, one of my hands could fit inside one of his fingers. He had the biggest hands on earth. And my soy boy grip almost crumbled in his hand. And I hope, I hope at least that by mowing the lawn, maybe my hands will get that big. I assume that's how he got him. He has a lot of lawnmowers. Maybe he's double fisting lawnmowers, like pushing two at once, you know? I want to get to that level because it'll cut your time in half, right? Anyway, in other news, today I found out I have a mental condition that is common in people my age. That is to say, what are now boomers, i.e. mid-range of millennials, people in their late 20s, often afflicted with what is now being referred to as Pokemon brain. And you might think that I'm making up some cute sounding term, but no. Today, an article was published on The Verge that said that people around my age who grew up with Pokemon have a section in their brain that they are calling the Pokemon section. And it's a part of your brain that apparently lights up when you see Pokemon. The way that they found out about this is that they took a group of people who grew up with Pokemon and then showed them a succession of images, including images of the original 150 Pokemon and pictures of, like, cats and animals and other things, just random shit. And every time they saw Pokemon, this section of their brain lit up. Now, I don't know if this is just the section of your brain that maybe lights up when you see anything you recognize, Since there's a huge difference between a Pokemon and some random cat, maybe if they had put pictures of the person's cat in there, maybe they would have got the same reaction. Maybe put a picture of my mom next to the Pokemon, you know, something that's been continually in my life, recognizably the exact same for two fucking decades and not a random cat. Maybe that would have been the same thing. But whatever the case is, When I see Pokemon, my brain lights up. I don't know what to tell you. It happens. I know it's real. I know it's in me because I feel it. When I see a Pokemon, I feel that endorphin rush. And we're talking, I'm a man who had Pokemon on uh, every surface that you could have an image on in my entire life. 
I was wearing Pokemon shirts, Pokemon pants, carrying a Pokemon backpack, a Pokemon lunchbox, Pokemon posters everywhere, thousands of cards, every fucking game. All I looked at for about four years of my childhood was Pokemon, and I've continued looking at it since. I have only made friends who are into Pokemon. I have only dated girls who are even more into Pokemon than I am. I have surrounded my life with Pokemon. And there's enough of us that that's a significant dating pool. That's not, that's not difficult. If you are older than me listening to this, which, God, I don't even know how you live. I don't know how you've made it through the world. I, I, I mean, I, I guess after a few years of this, maybe I'll get used to it. But boomerdom, boomerdom is hitting me kind of hard, if you can't tell. Um, if you're my age, it's perfectly normal to have Pokemon brain. It's not even weird. They're making a Detective Pikachu movie right now. It's coming out this weekend. Detective Pikachu. Did you know that Pokemon Go got a billion downloads? Did you know that? A billion. A billion. The the most sales of a video game ever is like... Something like a hundred million, I think, for Tetris on the Game Boy, because it came with the Game Boy. Pokemon Go got a billion downloads. I mean, yeah, it's an unfair advantage. It's a free app, but a billion. When I was a kid, I entered the third grade and people made fun of me for liking Pokemon. I thought I was the odd man out. I thought it was a craze that was dying. But apparently a seventh of the fucking planet is into it. And you got to account for the fact that a significant amount of that 7 billion is legitimate boomers, people too old to have even had sight by the time Pokemon came out, and children who just haven't developed the ability to say the word Pokemon yet. So once you cut all those people out, it's like a fourth of all humanity was playing Pokemon Go. Pokemon brain is just a regular brain whether pokemon is involved or not so now it's time for me to get mad now it's time for me to reject a lot of you a lot of you poor bastards because i have i have in in my mind the biggest problem in the universe wage cucks i've been arguing all day on every social media platform that exists about wage cuckoldry. And nobody gets it. Nobody understands because they look at me and they say, Artso Fartso, you're an insane person. What can you possibly know about the world? Well, let me tell you. I had to learn everything backwards. I had to learn everything from the outside in. Nothing I know came naturally to me. Nothing I know came from I'm participating with everybody else and and realizing things at the same time as other people or you know getting information from my peers or from my parents. I pretty much just was just there observing things, being confused about it, and then eventually hearing all the information everybody else had always known and going, wait a minute, but things weren't like that for me, but but that doesn't align with what I've been doing this whole time, so why would that be true? If, for example, the idea of the 9-to-5 the work cycle, 
Now, my dad and my mom have both worked countless regular retail jobs, sales jobs, regular-ass jobs. Neither one of them has ever had a creative job. They've never done anything crazy outside the norm. You know, my dad started off in the military. He joined the Navy, dropped out of high school, and then eventually, you know, worked worked a bunch of regular-ass jobs, eventually became a salesman, and had some success in that field. My mom has worked every fucking service industry and retail job you can possibly name. And yet, neither of them ever instilled in me the idea that one day I was going to have to do that. They never made me think, oh, when you grow up, you're going to have to get a regular job. Because when I was growing up, I loved media. I would read magazines and go, I want to make a magazine. I would play video games and go, I want to make a video game. I would watch movies and go, I want to make a movie. And my parents would go, yeah, man, go for it. Why? Because they never did it. And they, they want to see that happen. Because they have no understanding of what it requires at all, or how fucking difficult it is, or how inadvisable of a career it is to go into. So what we're going to talk about here is what would have been a Dunning-Kruger effect if it hadn't worked. Because I just went my whole life thinking, I can do those things. I can just go make art. Why not? What's stopping me? What could possibly be stopping me? So I did. But once I got into it, once I started trying when I was in high school, I failed for years and years. And I think that was the best thing that could have possibly happened because most people will start to get in maybe when they're 18 maybe in their late teens, maybe when they're in college and they go, I want to have a career in the arts. And then they start and they start failing and they keep failing and they fail for a few years and then they say, I'm not cut out for this. And then they leave. And then they see other people who make it. You know, they they hear those people give advice on how to be a creative, what you can do. And then they say, well, you have survivorship bias. Survivorship bias, while it is a real thing, is one of the most dangerous thought germs that is infecting the populace right now. Because what survivorship bias denies is the amount of effort that those survivors put into surviving. Yes, absolutely, luck and privilege are factors, no matter what. I am not going to deny that for a single second, but they are small factors in comparison to knowledge, practice, and willpower. And I know that you can say, well, it all worked out for you. You just had more luck and privilege than you realize. No, I know exactly how much I had. In fact, I think I had more than most people would even say that I had. I think I had a ton of it just by having parents who encouraged me to try to do the arts and never discouraged me because they didn't perceive me as failing over the years, but I was failing constantly forever. I was a total fucking hack. 
If I go back and look at the magazines that I was trying to create when I was 11, I made an entire magazine, 95 pages. All of the information is just ripped out of Nintendo Power, badly written, handwritten on lined paper, with images traced from Nintendo Power on a light board. And I know what you're thinking, well, you were 11. I mean, that's to be expected. I was taking it completely seriously. I thought this was a real magazine that people were expected to read, that I was expected to produce, that I was going to show to people, that I was going to use this to make a profit. That's how I looked at it at the time. And I couldn't even get my fucking family to read it. I couldn't get anybody to read it. Everybody was like, oh, wow, that's cool. Proud of you. All right, well, will you read it? Oh, well, it's about video games. I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about video games. Bitch, I'm an 11-year-old who wrote a magazine. Read my fucking magazine. But if it had been compelling, if it had been good, surely they would have. But if some kid handed me 95 pages of scribbles and in completely illegible handwriting, I would be like, well, you can read it to me. Uh, if, you know, if it's my kid, any other kid, I'm going to be like, this looks like shit. I don't want to do that. Obviously, it was a failure. And I continued to fail. I continued creating things that sucked. And I did it on the internet. I did it in the cesspool of haters. I was 14 on forums trying to hawk my fan fictions to people who were mostly in their late teens and early 20s. People who were fucking ruthless with me. Who were just like, you fucking suck. And no, they were not constructive. They were not helpful. They were just like, fuck you, get out. But it never made me want to stop. Because I I just wanted to do it. And I believed in the things I was doing. Because I I felt a value in it. And even if that's something that nobody else was going to be able to feel. You know, I truly don't believe that there is such thing as inherently bad art. There is art that can be deemed bad by consensus, that can be unappealing to the majority of people, but even if it only appeals to one person, it's not inherently bad. It's just not, you know, it's not good to most people, but if it's good to that one person, it's still good to that person. All of my art was good to me because I knew what I was getting out of it. I knew that I was passionate about it, that I had felt something from creating it, that I had expressed myself, that I had come closer to being the person I wanted to be by doing this thing. And so no matter how utterly thrashed I was getting, no matter how often I was, you know, being told to stop, I didn't stop. And I had the incredible luck, the incredible privilege to experience this when I was very young. Because if you have to go through this when you are an adult and you have to work a regular job and take care of a family and try to get this art career off the ground, it seems untenable. But it's not. It's not. I was a kid. I had to go to school. I had to go to eight hours of schooling every fucking day, five days a week. I had to do homework. Well... I obviously shirked off most of that homework, but if I didn't do at least some of it, I was going to fail and have to redo my classes, which is 
analogous to getting fired. You know, losing a year of your life is what you do if you fail enough classes that you have to repeat a grade. So you can't just fuck around. School is not just... People like to make it out like, oh, school kids have it so easy. They just, you know, just get babysat for eight hours and fuck around. No, you have to actually try or else you will waste more of your life and time. So, of course, I was trying on some level. And I had to deal with the the social demons of having no friends, of being bullied, of having insomnia and feeling like shit all the time because I ate like shit and just not knowing how to take care of myself, not knowing how to be, you know, the in the best mind state I could be as a creator. There was not really the means to do this well. The best thing I was getting out of it was not that I was getting better. It's that I was just failing, that I was seeing my failures, that I was being forced to redo and redo and redo because it wasn't clicking yet. But being in a position where I had no reason to give up because I had six years ahead of me to try to make this a career. I had until I graduated that if I could make this a career before I graduated, I'd never have to work a regular job. I'd never have to go to college. And that was enough incentive. Anybody can build that incentive inside of themselves. If you're working a nine to five and you have a family and you only have one hour of free time in the day, right in that hour, you have that hour. You have that hour every day and you can do that for years if you want it. If you want it, do it for six years, seven years. Don't stop doing it until it works. Because if you give up at any point, then yes, you failed. That is the only fail state of being an artist is when you give up and you stop trying. Until that moment, you haven't failed. Not completely. You fail on all these individual ways and you learn from those failures and you get better. And yeah, there are some people who don't know how to learn. There are some people who will fail and fail and fail, and then they'll just give up because they'll go, I guess this wasn't for me. And you know what? It wasn't. It's not for everybody. It's not something for everyone to do. But if you care enough that you feel like because you gave up, your soul is dying, if you feel like you will never be happy without doing this, you owe it to yourself to keep trying. And if you do find happiness without needing to do it, there's no need to do it. If you become happy and you become a regular person and you just do a nine to five and you have a family and that's enough to satisfy you, there's no fucking reason to do the arts. It's only for people who can't live another way. That is the purpose of it. But that can be you. It's just harder and harder the older you get. But if you give up, that's on you. So I failed and failed and failed all through high school. I wrote blog post after blog post. People made fun of me. People ripped on me. My writing sucked. Eventually, there were enough people. Eventually, I got to a point where the writing was just, just barely good enough that there were some people who were like, oh, I see the spark in this. I see how this could be better. But if you just fixed this and I would go, oh, that that's the problem. No, fuck you. That's perfectly fine. And then I'd read it back three days later and go, you know, or, or the seed would sit in my mind of that criticism. Like one time someone was like, you know, if you corrected the spelling errors in your posts, they might be readable. And I was like, fuck you. I don't need to spell check my posts. 
And then I tried to read one of my posts and I went, this is fucking unreadable because I would never read them. I would just write it and then publish. So then I, the next time I wrote, I spell checked it and I was like, well, this is a lot more readable. I can admit that more people read it. Wow. This is a huge jump. This is how bad I was that I wasn't spell checking my posts and I'm trying to get popular. But the reason that I was able to do it eventually is because of that constant practice, because I didn't stop, because I practiced for the better part of 10 years before I was successful. And yes, again, I had the privilege of doing this in a situation where I had more time than, more, than a lot of people do. And I also had the privilege of I am more intelligent than most people. And I know that sounds – that's, that's not something that, that, you, that anybody wants to hear or affirm. But, like, it matters. It matters to the, the cause here because I was able to pass my classes without paying attention because I was writing blog posts to class every day. I would literally just write posts all day in class, come home and transcribe into the computer. If I wasn't capable of that, I wouldn't have gotten better as a writer. If I didn't have the intelligence to look at my own writing and be critical of it and know what its problems are and be down on myself, then I wouldn't be able to get better. So yes, intelligence is a part of this. And if you're too dumb, it might not be the industry for you. Unless you have... You know, unless you're dumb in just the right way that other people connect with how dumb it is. Like whoever wrote uh, fucking uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, the dumbest book in the world, terrible fucking writing. But it's like the right dumb where it's like on the on the dumb wavelength of the general populace, you know. And I also had to analyze what everyone else was doing. Every improvement that I made to my writing came from reading someone else's stuff and thinking this stuff is good. People are reacting well to this. How are they accomplishing this? How is this writer being able to draw in an audience when I can't? For instance, a a man who I consider my mentor, Ghost Lightning, was an anime blogger who, first of all, launched his blog into popularity very quickly within the sect of anime bloggers. Because the biggest audience for anime blogs was anime bloggers, always. And the way that he drew attention to his blog is that he just went around and commented on everyone else's blog. And he left thoughtful, interesting comments that made you think he cared about your post. He left a comment on my blog, and I, like every other ego-driven fucking asshole who has an anime blog, immediately went to go read his blog that was linked in his name. And that was how he immediately had a fan following. He would also respond to every comment on his posts. And as a result, people felt like he was acknowledging them, bringing them into the conversation, and it made them excited to participate in his content. And so his comment threads would be insanely long because everybody who read it commented because they wanted to be able to have a conversation with this guy. Now, I, I never trusted view counts on my blog. The view counts were very small and also... I knew that there were lots of bots back then. There was lots of just spam bots that, that just click on every random link on the internet. So I never trusted the view counts. I only wanted comments. And even at the height of my blog's popularity, I could write, which is not very high, I could write a post and just get no comments. And I would always be like, what the fuck? Why do I not get any comments? So I started asking around. And Ghost Lightning had told me, well, the way you structure your writing, 
you always come to a conclusion. You always say, here's the way it is. There's nowhere to go from there. I write my stuff in a way where I raise a bunch of points and then I leave it open as a question. He often would literally ask a question at the end of his post. So I tried to copy that. I wrote posts that had questions at the end and structured it in less of a here's how it is kind of way, more of a here's how it might be, what do you think kind of way. And I suddenly had fuckloads of comments and I responded to all of them and it kept going for a while. Then I decided I didn't want to write that way because it wasn't really my style. I realized that I had put too much value on comments and that I didn't care that much about them. So I went back and altered it back to my old style, but with some new you know, some new things added onto it. And the more I watched other people's stuff, the more I learned, the more I would just say, oh, let me try to do their style because I like their style and then incorporate that into mine. And so when I got to a point where it's like, all right, I want to make a career out of this. Let me look at other people who are doing this as a career, study what they're doing, study how this market works. What do people want from this? And then find a way that I can make that mine. How can I do something that I know people will want to see, but in a style that will be gratifying for me to do it? And that is what the boogie pop is. That is a a term I used a lot in a lot of my other videos. I'm sure you've seen them if you're listening to this. So that was the boogie pop. And that's been my content style ever since. I'm able to have a career because of that. I'm able to have a career because I study what people want, I make something that I know people will want, and I enjoy it because I make it in a way that's gratifying to me. Anybody can do that. That doesn't require any privilege. It doesn't require any luck. It just requires some intelligence and the ability to study and interpret and the willingness to keep going even when it doesn't work. I have watched countless, countless anime blogs, anime YouTube accounts. People try to enter this industry. They do it for a year and a half. They get a little bit of traction and then they just drop off the face of the earth because it's not working fast enough. Well, if it's, if you don't let it take its time, it's not going to grow. It's not going to be that easy. You're not going to get it right on the first pass. I was writing my anime blog for seven years before I started my YouTube channel. No one was ever reading it. It was never more than like a hundred views a post at the height. It was a small blog and I was trying something different all the time. I would change the whole layout of the site. I would change my whole writing style. I would change the post frequency. I was just rolling the dice over and over again. Will this work? Will this work? Will this work? And then one time it started to work, but I just didn't enjoy it as much the way I was doing it. So I switched to something different. So I did that again in my YouTube channel. I found a strategy that I thought would work, went with it. It did work, grew to a certain point. And then at some point I got tired of doing it. I was like, I quit. You know, this is my job. I quit. I'm going to now do a different but similar job. And a lot of people stopped following me. I lost, my view counts went from about 70,000 a video back in the pony days, really closer to 40,000 on the back end because I had already made major changes to my style in the middle of it. But then it went from that to about 2,000 views a video. This is, this is quitting your job. 
This is quitting in such a way that you're taking a consistent revenue stream and turning it into a significantly smaller revenue stream. And I lost certain patrons uh, along the way. You know, I, I had my Patreon back then. It wasn't catastrophic right from the get-go, but eventually a lot of people left. So basically, I was starting over. And again, I started rolling the dice. My initial anime videos didn't get any views. 2,000 views. 2,000 views. Then I lucked out with my SAO video, my original one, 20,000 views. Even to me at the time, that was not much because I had had videos that were so much bigger. And it took until I made Why Good Anime is Hard to Make, which got 75,000 views all at once. It was like a you know pseudo-viral hit. Now people care about me as an anime voice. Well, that means that every time I roll the dice, there's more eyeballs on it. Every time there's a little bit higher odds that it's going to work this time. And I kept doing it until something clicked. Something blew up. Some video worked. And then the view counts went up, the sub count went up, the Patreon went back up. I've started a new job. I've created another job out of the ashes of my previous job. That didn't take luck or privilege. It took knowledge. It took willpower. It took a lot of risk and guts and rolling the dice over and over and over again until something worked. Not giving up. Now, there's a chance I could have made that switch And it never would have worked. It's possible I never would have gotten popular as an anime YouTuber. What would I have done then? Well, probably I would have kept trying. I would have just kept switching things up. Maybe I would have run out of money. And then I would have had to get a regular job. But I had already gotten a regular job to launch this career in the first place. I got a job at Target so that I could buy the equipment I needed. I got that job so that I could, you know, have this regular revenue to pay my rent to my dad. Because I was living at home, but he was charging me rent. You know, I was paying rent and working a regular full-time, very physical job, and I am not a physically fit person, so it was very exhausting for me. I would come home totally dead tired, and I would get immediately to work on a video. And I would put out two videos a week that were completely scripted, completely edited, and I wasn't nearly as fast back then as I am now. You know, it took a lot more thought. It took a lot more time in the audio bay. It took a lot more time for me to put together clips. I didn't have a set formula for it yet. I didn't have this like, you know, figured out. But I was so determined that that was all I did was go to work and then come home and then work on these fucking videos. And it was fucking exhausting. And I would break down crying because I was in so much pain. It fucking sucked for a while. And I wrote a bunch of sad boy music about it. But then... Eventually, the videos were doing well enough that I was making YouTube ad revenue, so I asked to have my hours cut so I could put more effort into it. And then when I put more effort into it, I was able to get videos out faster, to have a closer communication, a faster communication with my audience so I could figure out what they wanted even more. And I was able to keep pumping this thing up until I could just leave my job. And then it kept building on itself, you know? And so it was it was never just... The opportunity and the opportunity is again, it was there, but to suggest that you can't work and have a family and work at this thing for that, whatever, whatever small amount of time, maybe it's only an hour a week, whatever the case is, you have some time and you just need to fail forever until it works. But you can't say that. It's not something that 
anybody could do. Anybody could do it if they have it in them. If it's something that that you have the ability, if you have the willingness, if you for a lot of people, they might think they want it until they fail for a year and then they realize that it's not exciting for them anymore. Uh, in that case, it wasn't for you. But if you can fail for years and keep doing it and persevere, even if you never actually make it, even if you were to fucking die uh, suddenly, you know, five years in and you've, you, you've never gotten a lot of attention to your work, at least you, you didn't fail. You just died. <laughs> so the reason I'm talking about all of this is that there are so many people who will feed me the line Well, most people can't just do X, or it's not so easy to just do X, such as it's not so easy to just quit your job. It's not so easy to just transition to a different industry or to take some big risk. And my answer to that would be, well, it wasn't easy for me either. It wasn't easy to fail for years and years and years and be shit on constantly. It wasn't easy to have no income for a long time. It wasn't easy to make a a huge transition and burn away a lot of my audience and be at risk of having to go back to doing a normal job. I appreciate that it's even harder for other people, but it's not because it's easy that I think people should do it. It's because you should be constantly asking for the best life you can have. If there's something wrong, if you're not happy, you need to change something. You need to. If you are generally unhappy, you're fucking up. Because what's the alternative? Spend your whole life unhappy? Why? Why? Oh, I can't quit my job. I need the income to pay rent. Well, why are you paying rent? Why are you bothering? Why are you on this fucking earth? Why are you bothering to be alive every day if you're just miserable? There's no, you don't need to pay your rent to be happy. Now, if you have decided that there are a certain set of parameters you require to be happy, let me back this up for a second, all right? Let's assume that you are a monk. A monk is somebody who goes up to a monastery in the mountains and does not engage in any of the worldly pleasures that you and I know. They do not consume any animals. They try to they try to not use any resources basically. They try to minimize their impact on the world as much as possible. And what do they spend their time doing? Meditating. They spend their time achieving clarity of mind and oneness with their surroundings. Anyone can be a monk. Anyone can do that. You can reduce what you do into just surviving. And you can find happiness in that. It is possible. Monks are proud of themselves. They are, ha- well, they probably don't believe in things like pride, but, you know, they, they have achieved a state of being that is not negative to them. They are doing it with purpose. And that is all anyone needs to be happy. 
is purpose. That is the number one thing. It's not money. It's purpose. If you need money to achieve your purpose, then money gets involved. So what is your purpose? What are you going for? Now, if you feel that in order to achieve happiness, you need to have a house, a car, a wife, then you have to make decisions about how am I going, like, what can I do that will allow me to have those things and will be worth doing in service of those things. If you have a job that's working you 80 hours a week and you have, let's say, a wife and a kid and you live in a house in the suburbs, ask yourself at the end of the night, is this worth it? Is it worth working 80 hours a week to take care of this family and provide for them the kind of life that I think that they deserve? And if the answer is yes, you're doing it right. You are, it might, there might be some difficulty. There might be some struggle. There might even be some suffering. But if you can go to bed and say, I'm doing all this and I feel good about myself because I'm doing what I think is right to achieve the life that I think I want then you're you're fine. Now, granted, you might, you know, be able to make some plans on how to make the situation better, make it so you don't have to work so much, make it so that you can, you know, provide even better for those people. But if you're in a position where you feel as though the amount of work you're doing is justified by the reward, then you are living as a human should. If you find yourself in a position where you feel like your job's not worth it, where you feel like, man, the amount of happiness I'm achieving from what I am doing is, is not proportional to the amount of suffering that I'm enduring. If the suffering is greater than the happiness, you're doing it wrong. Yes, go quit your job. It's going to be a huge risk. It's going to suck. But you are not getting anywhere by staying in stasis. You're not getting any happier. Now, if there's maybe some big promotion you're going for and you're just like, oh, I just got to grind it out for six months. And once I have that promotion, it'll all be okay. Then that might be fine. That might be doable. But if there's not a a light at the end of this tunnel you're going down, you need to fucking back up out of that tunnel. You need to get, you know, you need to find where the, where the path splits, where, where does this lead to oxygen? You know, like you can't keep going down a road that is more trouble than it's worth. And I think that there are so many people who who just are like on autopilot. They don't think that they can change it. They don't think that they are capable of finding a life where they'll be happy. There's no reason that you should be incapable of that. You just haven't found it yet. I have a motto, uh, That is completely slipping my mind right now, but it goes something like if you haven't figured out how to uh, make everything work, you're not done trying. Don't give up at any point. If you find yourself in a position where things aren't how you want them to be, you need to be trying something different. You always need to be trying something different. And this has worked for me. It's something that every time I find myself in a position where I'm like, this isn't cutting it. There's something wrong here. Something has to change. 
I am willing to take a big risk. I am willing to make things shittier for myself in the short term to make them better for myself in the long term because that will give me the drive to to push through that era, you know, to push through that part that sucks. When I moved into the house in Boston, I had... I just didn't have enough money to feel comfortable. I had moved into a house that was fairly expensive on the basis of the idea that I was making a certain amount on Patreon and that that amount would keep going up. Instead, that amount went down and my down payment on the house was a lot greater than I expected and it put me in a really shitty spot. So that August, in order to get myself out of that, I decided to do a video every single day all month as a big publicity stunt. It kind of paid off, not as much as I kind of hoped it would, but I was able to push through that, which is basically putting myself in a shitty place because doing it a video every day fucking sucked. It was miserable, but I knew that the light at the end of that tunnel is this will mean that I will have less financial problems and it was worth it. But if it had been a position where I was going to have to do that for the rest of time, If I was in a position where in order to afford the living situation I was in, I would continually have to make a video every single day, that's not worth it. It's not worth living that life. And when I hear YouTubers complaining about how, oh, you really got to put out a video every single day or else your, your revenue goes down. I'm like, well, how much fucking revenue do you need? Like what you can do this job in a way that doesn't require you to work yourself to death. You need to find another way, you know? I'm I'm fucking especially tired of rich assholes on YouTube complaining about their YouTube jobs. Like, you know, I complain about YouTube because I think it's interesting and I don't do it that often. When bad things happen to me, I make as minimal fuss about it as pretty much possible. I'll make one video just to let you know what's going on, but I'm not out there fucking going on everybody's podcast talking about how my videos got demonetized or whatever the fuck. I'm not cry saying, you know, trying to cry a river to get more people to patron me. I'm just like, here's what's going on. Because I know that this is this comes with the territory of the job. It's been happening to me since 2013. I've always had issues. And when I hear these people crying and bitching about the problems with YouTube when they're getting millions of fucking views per video and fucking I know they're making ass loads of fucking money. I'm just like, dude, you have like the best conceivable job and you're making it shitty for yourself. You're saying, oh, I have to put a video out every day or else I'll lose relevance. And I'm like, you don't. You don't have to do that. You're choosing to make your life worse for more money. So... If the money's not good enough for you having to do this job the way you're doing it, then stop fucking doing it. You have that choice. And it's it's a it's at every level, whether you're making a lot of money or a little money, it's wage slave cuckoldry. It's people who are addicted to making making a certain amount of money that they just have in their brain. They have to, they have to constantly be trying for as much as they can possibly get. And they don't even know why they don't have any particular goal in mind. They're just like, Oh, I got to do it this way. Cause that's the way it works. You don't, you get to set the parameters of that. You decide how much money you need. You decide how much work is worth that money. And if it's not worth it, you need to make it worth it. 
And if you can't do a job that pays enough to make the, you know, to get you the amount that you think you need, you're going to have to learn new things. You're going to have to push yourself. You're going to have to try for better. You're going to have to, you know, find a way to make it happen. Because I'll tell you right now that no matter what industry you're in, if you work hard enough, you will rise up the ranks. I have never seen anybody at an entry level job who couldn't move up if they were really working that hard. I've seen people who start off like my brother Shade started working at Domino's. He poured himself into the work. He was a manager within a year. My dad, the reason that he's a general manager at a car dealership is that he was employee of the month every fucking month when he was a salesman because he busted his fucking ass. He wanted more money. He wanted to have more than what is the starting salary of a salesman. So he worked his way up the ranks of that. You can work harder and make more. And if the industry you're in doesn't allow for you to reach a level that you think would be the amount you want, you have to switch industries. And no, it's not easy. You might have to learn new things. You might have to go to school and do your job at the same time. You know, you might have to work two jobs and go to school, but you can't let yourself stay in the stasis. If you say, oh, well, that'll mean I have no free time for the next six months. Well, that's six months of free time you can give up for a future of never having to do this life again, or you can just live that same fucking miserable life forever. What's your choice? You have to make the choice to do the risk because you can't let yourself go on living shitty forever. Yes, it's fucking hard. It's extremely fucking hard in the short term to make things better in the long term. You have to think that way. And people can't. People can't think about long term. They're literally incapable. It's, it's like, a, it's like a, a, a mental block that everybody has. And if we could, we could fix capitalism. So this is why, as I've been arguing about this wage cuck shit on Twitter, capitalism has been a major part of the conversation. And it's because people seem to believe that in a capitalist system, the corporations have all the power. The reality is that we give the power to corporations inherently because you can't just take power. You can't take it. It has to be volunteered to you. You have to convince people to volunteer power to you. How do you do that? You offer them something. I offer you a minimum wage job that's easy to get. You say, well, I need a minimum wage job in order to live the kind of lifestyle that I want, which is not be homeless. So I'm going to take your job that you're offering. You are now enabling the company. And I'm not saying this is something that like the average person could ever refuse or would want to refuse. Not at all. But it is why the companies have power. It's because you make the decision. I don't want to be homeless. So I'm going to give power to this company. Now, if that company slashes their prices in half on all their goods because they outsource all their stuff to China and you say, I don't want to pay twice as much, I can't afford it. 
I got to buy the cheapest one. Then you're empowering that company to do that practice. I recorded a rant about this earlier, but I ended up throwing it away about McDonald's and how McDonald's developed such a bad reputation in the late 2000s because of supersize me, because of just being the butt of every joke that exists, because of their just the shitty fucking, the stores look like shit, their food is shit, they cut, you know, cut corners on cost everywhere possible. Eventually, the public perception of McDonald's got so bad that they started losing money a lot. McDonald's was was soaring downhill. They because you have to understand the operating cost to run McDonald's is pretty fucking high. You can't just you you might think, "Oh, well they have restaurants everywhere. They must be the most successful." Yeah, well it costs a lot to run all those restaurants, and if their profits start taking a nosedive, then that very quickly becomes untenable. That very quickly becomes, "Oh shit, we got to start considering closing stores. We got to we got to fucking rework our whole game. So that's what they did. Their profits dropped so much that McDonald's rebuilt most of their stores. They made it a better customer experience by including free Wi-Fi. You can literally just go to McDonald's and use the computer now. You know, that's a it's a it's a hot spot. It's that's a good thing, you know, for society in general. I've needed those plenty of times, you know. They made their bathrooms nice. They made better options on the menu. Stuff that was less you know, corner cutty stuff that was, yeah, their prices went up and a lot of people think it made it, you know, even less worth it for them, but it meant for McDonald's, they didn't have to sell as much because their prices were higher because the quality of the product was higher because the reason that they had to make this change. The reason that people weren't shopping at McDonald's anymore is that we were in an economic upturn in the early 2010s and more and more people were going to higher end chains like Chipotle. Chipotle was considered directly responsible for the, you know, the falling sales of McDonald's. So this is a case where the market demanded quality over cost. They cared more about eating better than they did about spending less. And part of that is possible because the economy was better. But this trade is what we have to constantly have in mind. You need to constantly realize that the only reason that corporations can be shitty, the only reason that they can outsource jobs, that they can make corner cutting products is that we will favor the cheap over the good. And a lot of us, we think we have to, but a lot of the times What we think we have to do is based on a lack of understanding or a lack of education. There's so many things that are cheaper that just aren't directly in front of your face. Yeah, if you go to Walmart, everything's going to be cheaper. But the way that it got cheaper is through cost cutting. Now, what you could do is go to a local business whose costs are lower because they have fewer middlemen. There's different ways of lowering cost. We have to favor corporations who lower their costs in ethical ways, in ways that do not require them to cut corners because they have no incentive really to do what's right, but you can force them to. All the power they have comes from you. They can't make money if you won't spend money on them. They can't. 
They can't have employees if you won't work for them because they pay too little or the working conditions are too bad. This is what strikes are for. This is what unions are for. This is so that you can pressure the companies and say, hey, you won't be able to operate unless you make a change. That is the most powerful tool that we have. That is the most powerful thing we can do. We can fight outsourcing through boycott, but people won't do it because they don't see long-term benefits. They only see the short-term of this is right in front of me, it's convenient, and it's cheap. And yes, it will take some time to research and to learn where you can get things cheaper. And it's not always going to be easy to just go buy a cheaper version of the same thing. I love Walmart, you know? I go there all the time because it's a very convenient way to just get some cheap shit. But I also, as I live my life, try to learn new things all the time. I'm always going to local places and trying to find out what I can get for cheaper. I'm trying to find out what companies have the most ethical practices. Like, I won't buy Nike shoes because I know that they do this shit. I know that they have sweatshops. I don't know that about every company that has it, but I at least know that Nike is doing that. So at the very least, I won't buy any shit from Nike. Now, I'm just a drop in the bucket. I'm not having a huge impact on Nike, but if you have to buy a new pair of shoes every two years, that's at least 40 bucks that Nike's not making every two years. Now, imagine if 100,000 people made the same decision as me. That is a huge fucking cut to Nike's profits. If Nike was taught we can't make a profit cutting corners because people are against it, then they would have to change their practices. And people will insist that this is impossible, that there's no way to educate enough people to make enough informed decisions. But the bottom line is that, yes, while there is a large lower class in this country, while there are a lot of people who legitimately are just going to go for the cheapest thing because that's all they can afford, they're not the majority. They are not the majority. If you merely educated the cheap-ass middle class on how to spend their money better in ways that would benefit their, the economy, which benefits them because they now have better working opportunities if there's fewer companies that are hiring you know, for less, who, who, whose CEOs are having to take a pay cut because they can't outsource their shit and collect more off the top because we won't let them, then that's how we make this system work. And it's not as hard as you think. It's, it kind of happens naturally a lot of the time. When people provide worse products, they disappear. Companies are opening and closing constantly. I'm always seeing, you know, the changing landscape of what's going on in this country, of which corporations are growing or shrinking. And all of them want, of course, to course towards monopoly, but you can stop them. And I do think there's some level of government regulation that's helpful in this. I think that we're in a position right now where some of the social media platforms are forming monopolies. Facebook, you know, is shutting down competition through, uh, you know, through uh, predatory buying. And we have laws against that. And the only reason 
that those laws aren't being exercised is because boomers are running the country and they literally don't understand technology. They don't understand the repercussions of what a company like Facebook is doing, which is evident in Mark Zuckerberg's talk to Congress. So, you know, there's some problems just in the fact that our system is broken on basically every level. There's chinks in it everywhere. And the more chinks there are, the more damaged the overall picture is. But the answer to fixing all this is not a total overhaul of the system. It's piece by piece cocking the cracks. Hashtag cock the cracks. Just one by one, when you see a decision you can make for the better, make it. Don't buy Nike shoes. There's your number one. Just don't do it. Just buy other shoes. Other shoes are better anyways. Buy shoes that are made in America. They will last longer. You won't have to buy shoes as often if you buy shoes that are made in America. Or if you really can't afford it, buy secondhand shoes. Buy shoes that aren't making any profit for the company. If you don't support the practice of a video game company, for instance, which a lot of people I know will resonate with a lot of you, don't buy their games firsthand. Buy it used. If it's got a pay-to-play system, if it's got always on DRM, don't play the fucking game. You don't have to play every fucking game. There are thousands of games you can play. You don't need to play the game that you disagree with the industry practices of. You also don't need to report on the game. You don't need to make videos about the game. You don't have to do any fucking coverage. You can shut them out. You can do that to any corporation. You can say, fuck you, change your practices. That is how you fix capitalism. Anyway, that's the main thing I wanted to rant about in this. So this has been the first episode of Artso Fartso's Whirling Dervish podcast. I hope you enjoyed. I assume it will be like this every time I record this standing in my underwear full of passion, making strange zen gestures as I do my outro. Thank you to the lovely Pansu Party for being my audience. The audience to what at first was apparently a stand-up show and then became a political tirade. How, how do you feel? It was definitely entertaining. Well, that's the best review you could ever ask for. So let me know what you thought about this, both your thoughts on the actual points I made and I your thoughts to touch my phone twice. <laughs> and your thoughts on if you like this podcast, if you want to see more of this because I have all this stuff exploding out of my brain. You know, I could go listen to Dick Masterson. I could go listen to Joe Rogan. But those dudes are old as fuck and they don't know about all this extra shit that I have to deal with as a millennial. Who's becoming a boomer. They don't have Pokemon brain like I do. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just the voice of the next generation of boomers. Uh, Let me know if you want more of this and thank you for listening.